Congregation, I proclaim to you God's word as it comes to us in Malachi 1, verses 1 through 14, and Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 18, with particular attention to our text, which is Malachi 1, verse 11. And there are some particular things I'd like to say about the text before we read it. Um, For most of you who have the New King James Version, you will notice that the words shall be in Malachi 1, verse 11, are in italics. And that is because in the Hebrew, those words are not there. The verb is implied. And so it's the translator's choice to put the words shall be. Um, Many Bibles will have a footnote which says or is. And so they've made a choice to put it in the future forever. However, I believe it would be best to translate this verse in the present. And so I will read it in the present with the verb is instead of shall be. And later in the sermon, I will explain why that is. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense is offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name is great. Among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, is your God too small? I ask the question because if we really acknowledge the all surpassing greatness of our God, we would tremble at the thought of offending Him. That was the problem with the gift that Ananias and Sapphira had presented before the apostles in the book of Acts. After selling some of their land, they had given most of the proceeds to the church. And wouldn't most of us consider such an act an act of generosity? But the Lord struck them down so that they died. It was a matter of approach They wanted to make it look like they were giving everything to the Lord, when in reality, they were holding some back for themselves. As a result, they were condemned for lying to the Holy Spirit. How could someone think that they could pull a fast one on the all-knowing, infinite God? Their concept of God was too small. And as a result, their worship was not pure, Beloved, the Lord wants us to know of His greatness. He wants us to acknowledge His all-surpassing majesty and so offer pure service. This is the concern that Malachi is addressing in Malachi 1. So I proclaim to you the Word of God under the following theme and points. The Lord's name is great among the nations. Therefore, the Lord rejects the polluted sacrifices of his people. We will see the Lord's accusation against his people, the Lord's assessment of his people, and the Lord's answer for his people. Beloved, who do the Israelites think they're serving? Yes, they offer sacrifices on the altar of the Lord, recognizing it as the Lord's altar, It's not an altar to Baal or some other foreign god. No, it's an altar to the Lord. 
But somehow, the people and the priests display by their actions that they have a rather low view of God. And so the prophet Malachi needs to remind them who God really is. Five times in our reading of Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14, Malachi identifies God as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the God of the heavenly armies, the divine warrior who's over all power in heaven and on earth. The prophet Isaiah gives us a sense of what it means to be the Lord of hosts. When the Lord punished the people of Judah for their sin, it was his sovereign will to allow a remnant to survive. Isaiah 1 verse 9 says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. The Lord of hosts was the ultimate warrior who had power over life and death, a God to be feared and honored. The psalmist in Psalm 89 verses 6 through 8 expands on what it meant to be the Lord of hosts and what it continues to mean. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, and the implied answers, brothers and sisters, is no one. There is no one who can compare to the God of Israel, the all-powerful God, the King of the universe. And Malachi had just reminded them that it was this God who had chosen them over all the nations of the earth, even over their brothers Edom. God had declared to them, I have loved you. Think about it, beloved. The all-powerful God of heaven and earth says to his covenant people, I have loved you over all the others. And in light of the glorious majesty of our God and his love for his people, what do we observe in Israel? That their worship was somehow substandard. Brothers and sisters, They did not bring the honor that such a great king deserved. And so the Lord challenges the Israelites, presenting himself as their father. He asks them, where's my honor? In Exodus 4, verse 22, the Lord made it clear to Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn son. And later in Exodus 20, which we read this morning, he lays out the just requirements of his law. There he instructs the Israelites, honor your father and your mother. As a father to his people, God was entitled to be held and esteemed, to be acknowledged for his greatness and his importance. In fact, failure to offer such honor to one's father was a crime punishable by death. Exodus 21 verse 17 says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. The word here translated as curse also has the sense of dishonor. So whoever dishonors his father or his mother shall be put to death. For God's covenant people, to be accused of not honoring one's father was a serious charge. And the Lord goes on, presenting himself as their master. And in our text, master 
has the sense of kingship. The Lord was their king, and they were his servants. And he asks his covenant people, Where is the fear that you owe me? The reverence that is due to one who held the position of a mighty king. Beloved, a king demands honor and respect. It's not optional. It's his due. And they're not dealing with just any king. They're dealing with the Lord of hosts, the great warrior king who held their very lives in, his, in their hands. The Lord's, in question, the Lord's questions imply that the Israelites had fallen short of giving their heavenly father, their master, and their king the honor due his name. And who does the Lord address first and foremost in our reading? The priests. They were in a position to instruct the people about their obligations. They could have prevented much of the dishonor that took place in Israel. But rather than doing that, we read that the Lord accused the priests of despising his name. To despise the Lord's name meant to hold him in contempt. The religious leaders were leading the way in dishonoring their great God. A serious charge in light of the majesty of the Lord. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. The action in our text suggests that they allowed the contempt to go on and on, on a continual basis. And in the midst of their contempt, they seemed oblivious to the Lord's accusation, saying, how have we despised your name? Brothers and sisters, the Israelites were people like you and I. If we presented the same question to the congregation, to the elders, to the deacons, the minister. Would we be at a loss at how to answer? Would we be oblivious to the charge? We're God's covenant people. We go to church each Sunday. We pay church and school. We show up for the consistory and council meetings and do the required visits. We're doing what we ought to, aren't we? How have we despised his name? It's a question we ought to consider in the light of our reading in Malachi 1. So just how do the priests show contempt for the great name of our God? The Lord makes it explicit how they show contempt for his great name. They were offering polluted food on his altar, offerings that were not acceptable. The sacrifices offered to the Lord was to be an animal without blemish. Deuteronomy 15 verse 21 says, If it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. A blemished animal was of significantly less value. So such a sacrifice would cost the giver little. It was like giving the leftovers to the Lord. David refused to accept an animal for sacrifice that cost him nothing. In 2 Samuel 24, we read that it says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. But this is exactly what the priests were allowing. They even told the people that it was all right to offer blemished animals. Verse 7 of our reading tells us that the priests were saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. The priests were to concern themselves with clean offerings, but instead they endorsed the use of animals that were lame and blind as acceptable sacrifices to their great God. 
And it's significant that our reading refers to the Lord's table, which corresponds to the altar. Because by this reference, the Lord makes it clear that He is the Lord of the altar. They had despised His name, and now the priests had no hesitation about allowing and promoting the desecration of the Lord's altar. But really, what was being despised? The altar represented the promise of the Lord to send a Savior, a sacrifice that would pay for the sins of the people. Allowing polluted sacrifices was a slap in the Lord's face. The altar represented His promise. They acted like God's promises were tainted, that His promises were something to be treated lightly. But how, brothers and sisters, could they do that? The altar pointed to the necessity of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To offer a blemished animal implied that they did not need a perfect Savior. That our great and holy God would accept something less. And if God would accept the leftovers, what need would they have of a perfect Savior? Beloved, that brings us back to the question that I brought up earlier. Are we different from the Israelites of Malachi's time? Or have we too despised the Lord's name? The promise that the altar represented has been fulfilled in Christ. The Israelites looked forward to this promise as we look back. Brothers and sisters, our salvation too rests in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As a covenant child, I am assured by my great God that the sacrifice of Christ is for me. And is this It's the same promise that God's people looked forward to in the time of Malachi. But they treated his promise with contempt by giving tainted sacrifices. But don't we too give a sacrifice? Are we not too called to offer our lives as a living sacrifice? And so I would do well to ask the question, in my calling to offer my life as a living sacrifice of praise to Him? Am I offering pure service to my great and glorious King? Or am I offering half-hearted service like the Israelites of Malachi's time? The priests had not insisted on pure worship. Sacrifices that didn't cost the people too much were good enough. They were willing to be good Christians when the stakes weren't too high. Isn't that human nature? We give from our abundance so it doesn't really cost us. We speak up for Christ in the midst of the converted, but when it might damage our reputation, we remain silent. We show up once on Sunday and we think that we've given God His due when the elders that the Lord has placed over us call us to be there twice. As office bearers, we tell ourselves that we want to think the best of a ward member But when we see that he's gone astray, we really don't want to confront him or her. And we let the matter slide. And in our text, it goes from bad to worse. Verse 13 says, the priests are bored with the worship of the Lord. It says, what a weariness. They can't be bothered to insist that the people offer an acceptable sacrifice, even sneering at it with a show of contempt. And if that's the attitude of the leadership, can more be expected from the people? Don't we sometimes see that today? 
We come into the presence of the Lord of hosts and we can't wait to get out the door. The minister's message is too long. It's too boring. And in our boredom, we pay half-hearted attention to the proclamation of God's word that points back to that altar. Brothers and sisters, we should be filled with excitement to be in the midst of God's people where the good news that Jesus Christ was crucified for you and for me is proclaimed each week. We of all people are blessed to have the opportunity to sit under the faithful preaching of God's word. And that brings us to our second point, the Lord's assessment. The situation presented by Malachi begs the question, should our great and holy God accept such worship that profanes his name? The Lord responds in verse 8. He instructs the priests to offer it then to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? Would an earthly ruler accept a defiled gift? Of course they wouldn't. In fact, they'd be more likely to be offended by such a tainted gift. Would the President of the United States be satisfied with some scraps from your plate, like some beggar on the street? It would be better not even to offer such a gift. And the Israelites have not come to offer their sacrifices to just some earthly ruler. No, they've come before the Lord of hosts. And so the Lord sarcastically responds to the priests. He taunts them. He says, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Try it. Come with your tainted sacrifices, the leftovers from your flocks that cost you nothing. Try and appraise your great God that way. The Lord of hosts says, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? And the answer is clearly not. If you're looking for God's mercy and his favor, this is not the way. In verse 10, the Lord says, you might as well shut the doors to the temple. There's no point in offering defiled sacrifices. You're offering sacrifices in vain, calling upon his great name in vain. A transgression against the third commandment. When we worship our great God with small thoughts in our mind and think that our leftover service will satisfy our holy God, we might as well not show up. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in you. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. In fact, verse 14 says, you can expect not blessings, but curses. The Lord says, cursed be the deceiver who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. This reference refers to a free will offering. Leviticus 22, verse 19, that says, only a male without blemish was acceptable as a free will offering. Such an offering wasn't even required. So although it was given freely, they thought they could please God with something half-hearted, an attempt to appease God with service that really didn't cost them. The Lord says such service is cursed. Isn't that what's laid out before each of God's covenant children? He chose us just like he chose Israel. He extended his covenant promises to us. The promise of our great king is a promise of eternal life. And he calls us to respond in obedience, to offer our lives as in pure service to him. But how often isn't our service substandard, tainted, 
done without a whole lot of zeal or enthusiasm. The truth is that even by giving our best, we couldn't give what the Lord required. The reality is we all stand under the curse. In our sin, we stand condemned. What we need is Jesus Christ. What we need is His perfecting work. The prophet Isaiah had made that point earlier. We've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. But although the Lord pronounces His judgment on those who do not serve Him as they should, we need to remember that in the beginning of our passage, the Lord proclaimed His love for His people. The Lord does not leave us to ourselves. In His love, He provides the answer. And that brings us to our last point. The Lord's answer. He tells the priests that among the nations, His name is great. There are those offering pure sacrifices. But you ask, didn't we just conclude that our service can never be pure? So how is it that people among the nations could offer a pure sacrifice? Brothers and sisters, we need to look past the altar to what it represents. According to our reading in Hebrews, the sacrifice of animals themselves could never take away sin. The altar pointed to the necessary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did his sacrifice do for his people? Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Our great and loving God sent his Son so that he could perfect our imperfections. Our only hope is to place our trust in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We need to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing what the altar represented, how could the Israelites offer anything but the best? A tainted offering showed their lack of faith in God's promise that would be fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the Lord responds to the failure of the priesthood by pointing out that among the nations there are those offering a pure offering to His name. The reading is not referring to heathen sacrifices. No, there were those who had faith in the God of Israel. Malachi tells us that from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. There are a few things that we need to take notice of here. From the rising of the sun to its setting refers not to time, but to geography. What Malachi is saying is that from the nations where the sun is rising to the nations where the sun is setting and all the nations in between, those are the nations where believers uphold the Lord's name as great. You will notice that our translation says will be. It is pointing to the future. The King James ver- in the King James Version, these words are in italics because in the Hebrew they're implied. And if we consider that prophecy usually has multiple levels of fulfillment, it's very reasonable to conclude that there is an immediate fulfillment to these words, as well as 
a future fulfillment of these words. The Lord's name was great at the time of Malachi's prophecy. So we can translate our text with is rather than will be. And what that means is that the Lord's name was great among the nations already. Malachi lived among the returned exiles after the rebuilding of the temple. There were many Jews who had been dispersed throughout the nations. In the time of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar made God's greatness known throughout the entire known world. Consider the words we find in Daniel 4, verses 1 through 3. There it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. We read in Acts 2 that God-fearing Jews and converts from throughout the nations gathered in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. The Lord brings all this to the attention of the priests. Of all people, they should have known God's greatness. They had been returned from exile, received a new temple with the promises attached to the sacrifices. They lived in the promised land. Everything around them showed they were loved by the Lord. They were different from Edom and the other nations around them. A people set apart. But where were the pure sacrifices being offered? Not in Israel, but among the nations, among the Gentiles. And it's clear from Scripture that only sacrifices offered in the temple were considered pure. So we should not conclude that the nations were sacrificing animals. No, they offered pure service as the believers would in the future, after the coming of Christ who abolished the daily sacrifices in the temple. Their offerings of service were pure because they placed their trust in the coming sacrifice that the altar in the temple at Jerusalem represented. And it was through the work of Christ that their offering would be perfected. They had faith in the promise that they would be delivered through the coming Messiah, through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is a great king who was feared among the nations. Therefore, the Israelites were to take notice. And God's fame among the nations has only increased with the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Given what Christ has done, how much more should we take notice of the glory of our great King? And His greatness will continue to increase until every knee bows and every tongue confesses the majesty of our great and glorious God. We are God's covenant people, heirs to the promise of salvation extended to us by our great King. We're not looking forward to the fulfillment of the sacrifice like the Israelites. No, Jesus has made the perfect sacrifice, putting an end to the need for sacrifices. 
but he's calling you and I to offer our lives in living, as living sacrifices in his service. Do we place our trust completely in him? And as a result, do we render untainted service? That's what God wants. God sent his son so that our service might be perfected. We cannot be the sons and servants that God demands in our own strength. Left to ourselves, we would have had no hope. We would have been under the curse. We need Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as the perfect Son and servant. He acknowledged the greatness of God. Therefore, he was willing to become the cursed one. He acknowledged the Lord of hosts and submitted because we couldn't. And it's only through him that our service is made pure. He sent his Holy Spirit to assist us so that we can begin to offer pure service for such a rich gift from our great King. How can we continue to offer tainted service? Could we possibly be bored by such a rich blessing? Absolutely not. The work of Christ is exciting and we need to be filled with zeal. Let us serve him with passion because Christ perfects us so that we can offer pure service to our great and glorious King. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Israelites thought that their half-hearted worship would be sufficient to satisfy our holy God. But the Lord responds to us today by declaring that he is the greatest King of all the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And that those who serve him must offer pure worship. Anything less is an insult to his great majesty. Anything less is worthy of his curse and not his blessing. In light of this, we're brought low because we cannot offer such pure service in ourselves. We tremble to realize that we've fallen short, that we too are under the curse of the great king. But the Lord has declared in his great love for his people and in his mercy sent one who could offer such pure service, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to the Lord. Thanks be to Jesus Christ who took our curse with him to the cross so that through his work we might be presented before the holy throne of our great king without spot or blemish. As a result... Let us offer pure service to our King until the day when His greatness is acknowledged by all, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess the greatness of our King. Amen.